Welcome to episode 28 of Revelation, an Idealist Interpretation, the River of Life and Tree of Life. I'm Father Ron Shipley, founder and director of the Anglican Internet Church. Revisions to this series are part of the AIC's continuing celebration of the start of its second decade on the web. As a reminder, if you have not already viewed Episode 2, which includes my primer on numerology in Revelation, I urge you to do so since understanding how John used numerology is critical to understanding Revelation and this series. In this episode, the focus is on Chapter 22, The River of Life and Tree of Life, the final chapter of the final act in the divine drama that forms the second half of Revelation. St. John's perspective continues from where he was at the end of chapter 21 on earth looking to heaven. The illustration is again the 15th century Italian fresco in the Greek style at Mount Athos, Greece. The first of four readings is verses 1 through 5. The illustrations for nearly all the slides in this episode are three interpretations of the River of Life, Tree of Life. The first is the River of Life from the San Saber Beatus, produced in France in the 11th century, based upon an earlier original work in Spain. The second is the River of Life, an illumination from the Beatus of Libana, produced in Spain in the 10th century. And finally, the river of life and tree of life, used in full or in part from the 11th century Bamberg Apocalypse, says it was used on page 185 in the companion bookstore publication, Revelation, an Idealist Interpretation. Of these, the Bamberg version is the most literal and most faithful to the details described in Revelation. It is also the only one of the three prepared in the Byzantine style. It was produced by Western church artists trained by artists from Constantinople at Reichenau Monastery, Reichenau, Germany. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, and on the other side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. What we hear in verses 1 to 5 is among the most poetic words in all of the book of Revelation. In just five verses, there are seven allusions to important Old Testament images that have been incorporated into traditional Christian theology. First, the water of life. Second, the heavenly throne as the source of power and grace. Third, the tree of life. 
Fourth, that there is no more curse. Fifth, the right to place names on foreheads. Sixth, the new privilege of, quote, seeing, unquote, the face of God. And finally, the image of God as light. In verse 1a, the water of life, mentioned in Revelation 7, 17, and 18 as fountains of water, and in Revelation 21, 6 as the fountain of the water of life, now runs abundantly as a, quote, pure river of life clear as crystal, unquote, and flowing from the divine throne. In the Holy Land at the time of Christ, and as it still remains today, water and or access to water was and is among any family's most valuable assets. Water was used for cleansing rituals and in the Christian era for baptisms. The words pure and clear as crystal add emphasis to the concept of the divine origin of this water. St. John will refer to how the faithful have access to this water in Revelation 22, verse 17. An Old Testament precedent is Ezekiel's vision of the new city and a new temple from Ezekiel chapters 40 to 47. In Ezekiel 47, verses 1 to 12, the prophet wrote of abundant water with its source at the temple. Here is verse 1. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. Raised in the Hebrew cultural and religious traditions of the Old Testament, St. John would have known of the symbolic uses of water in the temple celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. The ritual required the priest to draw water from the Pool of Siloam, symbolic of the life-saving water from the rock during the flight from Egypt, and carry it in a golden vessel seven times around the temple altar, imitating the seven walks around Jericho, then pour it on the altar as an offering. A New Testament precedent is found in St. John's own account of Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles in 29 A.D., the NKJV Study Bible speculates that it was after the seventh walk around the altar that Jesus said, as reported by John in John 7, verses 37 and 38, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, quote, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus' Old Testament citation is a combination of the Septuagint, or Greek Old Testament, translation of Isaiah 12, verse 3, which is written in the New King James text as, Therefore with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And also from Isaiah 43, 20, Because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. In verse 1b, the, quote, throne of God and the Lamb, described as the source from which the water flows, is a foundation for the Anglican understanding of procession by the great Anglican bishop and scholar Lancelot Andrews, 
in whose interpretation all things flow from the Father through the Son when the faithful are in the Spirit. The latter, a term John himself already used in Revelation 1, verse 10, 4, verse 2, 17, verse 3, and 21, verse 10. The Nicene Creed defines the Holy Spirit as the giver of life. For more about Lancelot Andrews and his explanation of the concept of procession, see pages 14 to 17 in the AIC Bookstore publication, Christian Spirituality and Anglican Perspective. The tree of life in verse 2 recalls the tree of life in the midst of the garden from Genesis 2 verse 9. The number of fruits on the tree is the mystical number 12, which St. John has already explained in his description of the 12 gates and 12 foundations of the wall of New Jerusalem in Revelation 21, verses 12 and 14, that they are symbolic of both the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. The leaves of the tree of life provide healing much as the trees on the bank of the water of life do in Ezekiel 47, verse 12. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for medicine. St. John uses the phrase again in verse 14. The words no more curse in verse 3 have both Old Testament and New Testament precedents. The Old Testament precedent is Genesis 3:16 the pain of childbirth as punishment of Eve and all women thereafter for the disobedience of Eve, discussed in the introduction to Revelation chapter 12 and in the commentary on Revelation 12 verse 2, and the discussion of the Christian understanding of the relationship between the serpent in the creation account and Satan in the commentary on Revelation 20 verses 1 to 3. The New Testament precedent is the allusion to the shame of mankind for the crucifixion of the Son of God. The verse's spiritual meaning is that paradise has been restored to its status before Adam and Eve's disobedience in eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, recounted in Genesis 3, verses 1 to 15. Reflecting this understanding, the Orthodox Study Bible, New Testament, and Psalms gives Revelation 22, 1-5 the subtitle, Paradise Regained. Servants shall serve him, in verse 3b, will be discussed later in the discussion of verse 9. In verse 4, the Old Testament prohibition told to Moses in Exodus 33:20, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live, has been lifted. Based on John 14, verse 9b, Christians believe that the face of God is the face of Jesus Christ. He who has seen me has seen the Father, so how can you say, show us the Father? For an extended discussion of how Christians can, quote, see, unquote, the face of the invisible God, see part two in Christian spirituality, an Anglican perspective. In verse 4b, St. John reveals that the faithful are now permitted not only to 
see the face of God, but also to wear the name of the Father and the Son on their foreheads. Among the Old Testament precedents is the legend, Holiness to the Lord, sometimes translated as Holy to the Lord, worn on an engraved plate carried on a blue cord hung from the turban so that it hung down on the temple high priest's forehead, as described in Exodus chapter 28, verses 36 to 39, and in chapter 39, verse 30. A second Old Testament precedent presents the legend as a protection offered the faithful against the day when the Lord would exact vengeance on the wicked in the holy city, as described in Ezekiel 9, verse 4. And the Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and cry for all the abominations that be done within it. This image is the exact opposite of the beast with a blasphemous name on its head in Revelation 13, verse 1. The phrase marked refers to the placement of the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, which in Ezekiel's lifetime looked like an X. This concept is still used today when someone not literal may make his mark on a document witnessed by someone else. In the Christian tradition, the making of the sign of the cross on the forehead and chest is a way of placing the mark of God on the faithful in three ways. First, as an honor, as in Aaron's headband, second, as an announcement to the world, and finally, as protection against the assaults of Satan. In verse 5a, there shall be no light there, they need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light. St. John returns for the third time to the lack of light or the sun and moon in the New Jerusalem. He had made the point in Revelation 21, verses 9 to 13 and 23, in the context of created versus uncreated light discussed earlier. The New Jerusalem is illuminated by uncreated light, the same light which illuminated the world on the first day before the sun and moon were created on the fourth day, according to the Genesis account in Genesis 1. 3, 4, 5, and 14 to 19. The phrase, the Lord God gives them light, means that the light which illuminates the new Jerusalem is Jesus Christ, who declared himself to be, quote, the light of the world, unquote, in John 8, 12. Verse 5b, and they shall reign forever and ever, unquote, has the same meaning as the declaration his kingdom shall have no end in the Nicene Creed. The phrase was added at the Council of Constantinople in 381 AD to answer the heresy of the millennialists, which I discussed in episode 26 in the context of a thousand years in Revelation 20, verses 1, 2, and 3. The second reading from chapter 22 is verses 6 through 13. Then he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. 
Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now I, John, saw and heard these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, See that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Continuing his practice of bringing back phrases used earlier in Revelation, in verse 6a, St. John brings back faithful and true for the fifth time. In Revelation 1, verse 5, Jesus is the, quote, faithful witness. In Revelation 3, 14, he is, quote, faithful and true. In Revelation 19, 11, and Revelation 20, verse 5, he is true and faithful. In Revelation 22, verse 6a, it is his word which is described as faithful and true which was implied in the first verse of Revelation, Revelation 1.1. St. John is among those counted as his servants to whom this truth is to be revealed. The illustration is the frontispiece to Revelation from a late 9th century Bible produced in Italy near Rome. The divine declaration in verse 6a that these words, meaning St. John's account of his visions and instructions in the book of Revelation, are faithful and true, is related to the instruction to St. John from the one on the throne in Revelation 20, verse 5, write, for these words are true and faithful. As I noted in the discussion of Revelation 20, verse 5, if the one who speaks is the faithful witness and is either faithful and true or true and faithful, then the words of instruction he speaks are therefore true and faithful. A fundamental concept of Christian theology is that Scripture, including Revelation, is the true and faithful word of God. The references in verse 6b to John as a faithful servant and the revelation of events which, quote, must shortly take place, unquote, will be discussed in the context of verse 7 below. In verse 6b, St. John uses one of the Hebrew names of God, Lord God, which just for this slide is written in the English prayer book style, with Lord in small caps, which indicates it as a title of God. The same name of God in Hebrew was Adonai, 
which is rendered as Kyrios in both Greek and Latin. In verse 6b, that name is associated with the holy prophets. A prophet is one who is divinely inspired to speak or write the word of God. These include both the prophetic speakers in the Old Testament histories as well as the writing prophets, whether major or minor, from Isaiah to Malachi. In the Christian tradition, St. John the Baptist enjoys the unique honorary title of Last Prophet of the Old Testament. The illustration is John dictating revelation from the Bernie Gospels made at Constantinople in the 10th century with the illuminations added in the 12th century. In verse 7, the angel speaks to John a prophecy which might also be called a warning. Behold, I am coming quickly. In the Gospels, Jesus told the apostles that even he did not know the timing of his coming again that only the Father knew. Quote, but of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. That's from Matthew 24, verses 36 and 37. The phrase coming quickly and its variant shortly take place is used many times in Revelation, including in the first verse of the first chapter, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. The implication then and earlier in verse 6b is that St. John is counted among the faithful servants, as will be shown more clearly in the discussion of verses 8 and 9. Both coming quickly and shortly take place are references to end times, the study of which is called eschatology. The topic has been discussed previously in the context of Revelation 2, verses 10 to 11, 16 to 17, and 21 to 23 in episode 5 and episode 6, and in the context of Revelation 3, verses 2, 3, 5, 10 to 12, 20 to 21 in episode 6 and episode 7. St. Paul counseled his pupil Titus in Titus 2, 11 to 14, including this, to be always, quote, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who would redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people. The illustration is a second quarter 14th century illumination of Paul writing to Titus from the Bible Historial produced near Paris, France. St. Peter wrote of the same expectation in 2 Peter 3, verses 3 to 14, including this, Looking for and hastening the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. We look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. 
The illustration is a 13th century Byzantine icon of St. Peter. St. John made especially clear in Revelation 1, verses 1 to 3, 7, 8, and 19 that the coming of judgment, or the day of the Lord in both the Old and New Testaments, was to be the underlying theme of the book of Revelation. Examples of many forms of preparation for judgment were revealed in St. John's accounts of the first six trumpets in Revelation 8.1 through the turning point verse, Revelation 11.15, in which St. John says that, quote, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. After the turning point verse, the narrative shifted to detailed examples of judgment, beginning with the conflict between the woman, the child, and the dragon, and continuing with the celestial war led by St. Michael the Archangel, the account of the bowls of the wrath of God, the discussion of the victory of the armies of the Lamb and the defeat of the harlot of Babylon and her beast and their followers, and the defeat of the beast and the false prophet, the casting of Satan and his followers into the bottomless pit, and finally the casting of death and Hades and anyone not in the book of life into the lake of fire. In John's lifetime, the expectation that these end times would be during their own lifetime was expressed in the Greek word parousia, P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A. In the Greek New Testament version of Revelation, the Greek words Jesus speaks in Revelation 22.7 in I am coming quickly are erkomai taku. Taku can better be understood as suddenly. The illustration is Christ enthroned among the choirs of heaven from the Ethelstan Psalter produced in Europe in the 9th century for the Bishop of Winchester, England. A New Testament precedent is Matthew 24, verse 44, in which Jesus warns, quote, Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The traditional Christian doctrine is that the second coming is always imminent. It can come at any time, and one should always be ready, as noted in 2 Peter 3.14 mentioned earlier. This imminence of judgment will be discussed again later in this episode. In verse 7b, the voice of Christ speaks the sixth beatitude and twelfth song in Revelation. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Scholars have noted the symmetry of St. John's placement of the first beatitude for readers of Revelation in chapter 1, verse 3, which I discussed in episode 3, in which it was spoken by John, and this one in chapter 22, verse 7b, spoken by the voice of Christ in the last chapter of Revelation. There is one more to come spoken by St. John in Revelation 22, verse 14. The illustration is a circa 750 A.D. 
illumination in tempera and gold on parchment of a seated Matthew from the Codex Arius of Canterbury, also known as the Codex Arius of Stockholm. In verses 8 and 9, for the second time, St. John, intent upon worship, falls down at the feet of the angel, and for the second time he is rebuked, and with the same words as on the first occasion, Revelation 19.10, see that you do not do that. The angel, for the second time, including St. John in the category of servant, explains, I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. The Old Testament precedent is Exodus 20, verses 1 to 6, in which the first commandment is to worship God only. The Christian understanding is that objects, including icons, crosses, prayer beads, and people, including priests, bishops, archbishops, and even the Blessed Virgin Mary, may be venerated but not worshipped. Where in Revelation 10, verse 4, the seven thunders, St. John is admonished not to write or to seal up, repeating the instructions to Daniel in Daniel 8:26 and 12:9, saying in Revelation 20:10a, he is commanded to do the opposite. Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Unquote. Another reference to the concept of the imminence of the second coming. In Revelation 1:19, Saint John received nearly the same positive command. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. In verse 10, he has already seen these things and heard further instructions. The command to write the things which you have seen may also have been inspiration to write his gospel, which was prepared in the years immediately following St. John's release from imprisonment on Patmos. In verse 10b, time is at hand, is another indication of the expectation of judgment in the near future. Verse 11, he who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still, unquote has been open to a wide variety of interpretations depending upon whether the reader is looking for the literal or the spiritual meaning. Is it a literal acknowledgement that some will always defer to the Lord? Or is it a spiritual reminder that the door Jesus mentions in Revelation 3.20 in the letter to the church at Laodicea remains open to the repentant? Idealists accept the spiritual interpretation, for which there are at least three Old Testament precedents and one New Testament precedent. In Isaiah's vision of the throne of God, when God asks, Who shall I send? Isaiah answers, Here I am, send me, in Isaiah 6.8. Then the Lord instructs Isaiah, Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, 
and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and be healed. That's verse 10. The illustration is an 11th century mosaic of Isaiah at the Neomoni Monastery on the Greek island of Chios. The prophet Ezekiel, faced with a similar problem, asked God for advice, and God replied in Ezekiel 3:27, But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. He who has ears, let him hear, and he who refuses, let him refuse, for they are a rebellious house which is another way of saying the door is always open. The illustration is an 18th century tempera and gold on panel icon of Ezekiel at Kiji Monastery in the Karelia region of northwestern Russia. Finally, there is this from Daniel 12.10. Many shall be purified, made white and refined, and none of the wicked shall understand but the wise shall understand. The illustration is another 18th century tempera and golden panel icon in the Russian Orthodox tradition depicting the prophet Daniel. A New Testament precedent for the spiritual-minded interpretation is the parable of the sower, in which Jesus quotes from Isaiah 6, verse 9. In the parable, the seed is the word of God, some of which will die for lack of water, some of which will be trampled, some of which will fall on rock and die from lack of nutrients, some of which will bear fruit but will not live to maturity. Jesus explains that, quote, the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, Keep it and bear fruit with patience, from Luke 8, verse 15. A possible answer to the interpretation of verse 11 is found in verse 12, in which coming quickly is used again. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Here the reward is not exclusively the modern expectation of a positive outcome. It implies the possibility of a negative result as well, that is, each judged according to his work, in which judgment the filthy will be judged as filthy and the righteous and holy will be judged as righteous and holy. In verse 13, St. John brings back for the fourth time the Greek words alpha and omega the other occasions being Revelation 1, 8 and 11 and Revelation 21, verse 6. Here, as in Revelation 1, 11, the declaration is found in its broadest form. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. These words are symmetrically placed in the first Alpha and last Omega chapters of Revelation reinforcing the traditional Christian understanding of Jesus as Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. For language purists, the English pronounced Omega as Omega. 
I discussed 12 examples of the I Am declarations in the Gospel of St. John in episode 29 through episode 35 in the AIC Bible Study video series, New Testament Gospels. Episode 28, the final episode in the series, is continued in part two.